Due to COVID-19, this podcast was recorded remotely. Hello and welcome to Podcast and Crew. I'm your host, Damien Cooper, and this episode I'm talking to director, producer and writer Louis Miles. I know Louis from university, where we both studied drama, but since graduating, Louis has worked in various departments of the BBC, predominantly for their sports team, as well as also for ITV. He then struck out on his own, where he has made well-received and nominated feature-length documentaries, which we talk about in the podcast. There's lots of really good information, as always, about how he got started and loads of fantastic advice for those looking to get into the sports side of TV producing. And with that being said, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Louis Miles. Hi Louis, how you doing? Hey Damien, good to see you man. Long time no see. Been a while, yeah. So let's start off by kind of getting an overview of what it is that you do. Sure, so I'm a director and producer of TV and film. Mainly make documentaries at the moment, that's just because I had a success with a few and then you get other projects at the back of it. But I also do things like ads for brands and football clubs and things like that and developing out dramas and TV formats. So it's a right old little mix. So yeah, it's all, all good fun. And as much as you have a day to day, what is it like? Well, obviously this year is all messed up. I mean, it really, it could be, it's a right old mix. I mean, I think if I've got like, say a feature doc on, which I've seen to have done at least one a year for the past four years or so, then I'd, depending on who you're doing it for, I'd probably be doing a bit of filming for one of those, so interview or a drama shoot for it. And then you'd be spending some days in the edit, putting it together. You'd be also be working on pitching for other work. Yeah, and then you might you might get another shoot on an ad or, or something like that at the same time. So it all sort of, you try and have to mesh it all together. I sort of start each year generally without anything on my plate. And I have that real fear in January that, you know, you're useless and nothing's ever going to come. And then I think people realise they've got to spend their money before April because that's when the tax year is over. And they're like, right, we've got to start doing this. So things pop up. And then as is the same with every freelancer, I think they'll tell you that it's either feast or famine. So you can often have three or four things on the go at once and then you'll get a time where there's not much on, which is kind of about now, actually. I mean, that little phase at the moment, so it's quite nice, actually. I used to be tied to to the football calendar so I would always pick up something between August and, and May as it were and then if you're in a tournament year you're rocking and rolling but then I moved away from being tied to actual the event of sport and, and into sort of storytelling more storytelling stuff and more brand work and then yeah it's January tends to be a bit rubbish this year's just you know it's just bananas I, it's um but weirdly being quite good at the same time just because I'd started a couple of things and they wanted to finish it so that's great but yeah it's always really difficult to get over that little bit because it's that even if you've done good things and you're like you're really kind of like oh I guess it's kind of like a an addiction isn't it really you do something really well and then you get yeah that's really good and then you don't have that hit and you're like I need it again and then you get worried that you don't get it and all the rest of it so I probably need to be better at just you know stabilizing but yeah it's all right I can't complain you know you get to see some interesting things and do some interesting stuff so it's all good brilliant and so I'd just like to touch on Kind of when you were coming towards the end of education, sixth form, uni, did you know at that point that that's when you wanted to go into editing and directing or did you kind of, did you come that roundabout way? I mean, as you know, we went to uni together and I've never had a plan for anything. So I think I wanted to become an actor, but I wasn't really sure about it. Obviously did plays with yourself and loved it and really thought long and hard about drama school and, and I really nearly did it and I basically fell into TV. I got, I can't remember how now, but I got freelance casual work serving tea at the BBC to the edit suites where they do all the all the bits and, and look at that was at a time, especially when, you know, the BBC hadn't been cut to shreds and it was still at television center and it was really exciting I mean like it was it was amazing so I just sort of thought oh I'll do that then and then I kind of actually always want to go back and do more drama stuff but I mean I know it's it's so difficult to get to the top level and all the rest of it and you know it's good to have a portfolio to support if you're going to do that and yeah so I kind of fell into it that way as it were and then had a great year I think in the end or year and a half because I sort of did it whilst also finishing the master's at 
at uni and then I got a sort of a year contract maximum you can get for something like that and, and had a great time made some really good friends and associates and yeah just sort of didn't really know what I was going to do and all the rest of it and then oddly I felt, fell into journalism which it was just the first real big opportunity that came up which was doing stuff for five live you know going getting the guests and printing the scripts and I also did it for Radio 4 and the Today programme all that stuff so all of a sudden you're in this kind of news environment and you know you stay there enough you end up being a journalist for the Beeb and that sort of thing but I don't think I was very good at it to be honest <laughs> I certainly wasn't very good I mean as you'll know I'm, I'm absolutely terrible at staying awake past 10 o'clock anyway so doing the overnight shifts without any booze was just not going to work so you just sort of try and, and get places and look for opportunities and did podcasts for a long time as well alongside all that which is like doing up like the times and the telegraph and bits of the guardian and then ended up working eventually at bbc sport and uh, that's my kind of my one and only proper job that i've ever had and that's kind of then set me on a sort of like all right this is something i really enjoy this is something good and yeah it's kind of all, all gone from there really and what kind of things were you doing when you joined BBC Sport? Well, it was, it was a right old mixture. I mean, I, I got my kind of break in telly from uh, just, again, by chance. I was doing some freelancing somewhere else and someone couldn't do some a shift at ITV. And they were like, can you cover? Can you cover? And I was like, yeah, I'll cover. Of course I'll cover. I didn't even know what the job was. And next thing I know, I'm sat in a TV truck with Kenny Dalgleish going through analysis and I'm supposed to know everything about what's gone on and and <laughs> I've always loved football I've always gone you know I used to go and watch Brighton and, and Wimbledon uh, or still do both those clubs and um, you know so I, I knew enough to get through it and then I had to find out some sort of weird stat about who would qualify for UEFA and like this is all pre-stats being really popular in football parlance right I mean Twitter was around but there wasn't like was it Duncan Alexander wherever the fender is that comes up with all these amazing stats that I can never <laughs> like how to come up with that and then yeah yeah, that went well and then all of a sudden I was doing Champions League for a, for a year just because the guy who was running it is really good and gives people opportunities and he was like you've done really well how do you fancy doing this for a season I was like okay that's brilliant and then I got into the Beeb as a result of that which was obviously more secure and you know BBC Sport especially then but has always been a barometer of very good quality and in sports storytelling but specifically at that time as well there was you know the, the cuts hadn't really taken effect so they were still making really nice films you were like oh wow that's kind of really cool to watch and so when I was there it's again kind of you start at the bottom you have to do things like comping up all the goals on the weekends matches but then you go and do a, a you know a feature on a footballer and then very quickly you're moved on to you know if you show you're good and you work hard and you come up with ideas and you pitch and you deliver most importantly then you, you start to do better things and you know match edits on match of the day you start doing that which obviously if you're a football fan that's an amazing thing and then it goes on to we did a lot of creative work behind the olympics and formula one when they had the rights there and we were doing races going out and filming with jake and eddie and dc and all that and i mean that's just like so much fun because you're you know you're obviously going around the world filming in these great places and telling stories i remember doing some stuff in brazil like in 2010 eight months after i'd started and all of a sudden you're having a barbecue with Juninho at this club that he owns and all the rest of it and it's 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 cool man it's really really good really really enjoyed those two years but they moved up to Salford and then it was a case of I did it for a year and I was like it's gonna be good to be there or do I want to be you know down south and setting up a life down here so time came to an end but it was a really good platform to learn from to develop at and we've still got a lot of friends there and it was cool and just by what you do because so many people like sport you get to work with some really great guys and oddly directing pieces with top actors and stuff like that because they all love the sport and they want to do it and you know and that's how it works so it was great what year was it that you decided to move on from the beep it's late 2012 and i've been there for about two and a half years i guess i think i joined in like january and it, that's a risk you know i probably didn't have enough talent i guess no, I think I had talent. I don't think I had enough experience. 
if that makes sense. I think that's probably the right thing to do. I think I always believed I could do something, but you very quickly realise that, you know, it's a competitive market full of some really talented people and a lot of caring people as well. It's not like everyone's trying to, it's not cutthroat or anything like that, but it's like, there's only so many things going on, especially at that time. This is pre-video being a massive thing on Twitter or, or Instagram or anything like that. I mean, it, it, even though it's so close ago, you know, it was, it was another three years before all of a sudden those video marketing campaigns and all the big, mass amounts of content that you get now that's only really been going for four or five years it still seems such a big part of our life and even our work structure in terms of what I've got coming up and all the rest of it you're like oh it's kind of all more that now rather than the tv stuff or so yeah probably a bit foolish at the time but you, you just have to keep on going forward I guess if you hadn't done that you wouldn't have found yourself making Kaiser yeah well I mean again and this is the thing it's just always I mean, in anything, anything creative, I think you've always got to go out and meet people and network and do all of these things. And the Kaiser came about because I was, I'd done some work for Football Manager, the computer game. I'd made a documentary for them. And then I was their advert director for a couple of years in the end, but I was halfway through just starting to make these ads. Well, actually they weren't, they were kind of like funny pieces for the net, like brand building features and literally the week we launched every platform went native so it used to be you put it up to youtube and that's how you did it but then all of a sudden everything went to like facebook twitter and all this other stuff and then you had to move it all around but yeah i was doing all that and then i basically went for a beer with the guy who's the, the business director there tom markham that's tom markham who'd been in part of the dark and we got on very well and got the beers and then they told us about this incredible story about this guy who had had a 26 year professional football career in brazil signing for all these massive clubs became a celebrity but never played a game and, and he was a con man who would exploit any opportunity to give the appearance of being a footballer and then obviously not being one and and, and he lived this marvelous life of having all the benefits of a celebrity lifestyle without any any talent whatsoever well any talent on the pitch he's a, obviously a master manipulator and the best pr person i've ever met we just decided to go and make it and that was a kind of crazy couple of years really making that it's such a great film i, I really enjoyed it when i saw it at the cinema it was so much fun and then you've obviously moved on to other projects since how how have they come about i mean it depends sometimes you just pitch and you pitch and you win and it's great so i did something for last year about apartheid i fancy doing something basically the complete opposite of kaiser which was you know a lot of fun probably pushing the boundaries of acceptability in terms of social norms obviously brazil's a very sexual place and if you're not in brazil and you haven't experienced it you would look would take one look at that and just think oh well everyone's a big sort of masculine oaf but then obviously when you're over there it's a very different type of society so anyway back to the point i fancy doing something a bit more serious you know one likes being stereotyped i guess and i did a film on apartheid with sir trevor mcdonald's and Peter Hayne, who had risked his life trying to stop the South African sporting teams coming over to play rugby and cricket. And that was a very massive part of apartheid ending. It, obviously, there's lots of different things that end something like that. But, but that was the one thing that really got to the apartheid state was they couldn't play their sport. We pitched that one to, to BT and they, they liked it and backed it. And then other times you get called up to do stuff. So just done a film in Liverpool for the BBC. They had that commissioned anyway. They needed to attach a director, a producer director to it. And, and so I obviously worked there a long time before. Just so happened that something else that I had planned to do had gone down and stars aligned was free to do it so it's it's a real mix and sometimes you get asked to be attached to things after you've made a few things you know you, you get a few phone calls saying that I just had a couple in the last week which is nice because the phone wasn't ringing for a while um, but you don't know if they're ever going to go anywhere and that's the same for whether it's films or if it's doing branded pieces or adverts or even you know sort of more regular work which you know you're always good to keep a mixture of things going because you never know what's going to fly and what's not so i tend to do quite a lot of work with bt for their champions league stuff and that's you know if i'm around and fancy it then i do it if i'm not i'm not you know and with covid how did you find kind of editing and directing the liverpool doc was it all done remotely i'm assuming yeah so dom robson smith who edited it was in manchester we basically we'd only been in production three weeks i think prior to it so i'd been 
oddly, I'd kind of suggested a system similar to what we ended up using anyway, because I didn't want to go to Manchester every day. And I couldn't because my wife was pregnant at the time and she suffered hyperemesis. So she gets very sick during pregnancy. So I, could, I just couldn't leave her with a young child for five days a week. So we, we kind of worked out a way where I could view Dom's edit. But obviously everything shut down and then you're obviously, everyone's kind of like, uh, what's going to happen? They were people have to say were fantastic in terms of saying that obviously we don't know but obviously if it comes back it's yours and we'll we'll find a way and and we all did so i mean we were a bit lucky in terms of that was always going to be an archive documentary it's always going to be based on the richness of what we could get and that's the, one of the major re- well the two major reasons why i took that film or three was one because i knew dom was doing it and i'd worked with dom a long time ago previously but it, we'd always gotten very well and he's a very good storyteller and then the the second one was that the i didn't really want to go and make something that was sort of just talking about how good liverpool were because it's a bit boring everyone else will be making that film anyway and yeah it's kind of not what i do but they very much pitched and, and won a commission based on the film saying like why did it take 30 years for them since their last title win to the, the win that they got a couple of months ago. Why did it take that long? And and actually, of course, there's quite serious reasons for it. And as it turns out, a really emotive three-act story, as it were, all to do with identity and place in the world. If you look at it as a, a broad church and fans will concentrate on the little incidents that happen along the way, but as a broad stroke of it, there's a, there's a, it's a real identity crisis there that, or an identity situation there that was really good to tell. And I thought it was, I didn't think many people would be telling it. So that was a good one. But of course it was all archived to tell that. And the BBC have this amazing archive up until sort of 2000, I think clubs weren't like they are now. But actually it's a bit of a lie. They aren't what like they were, it was about 2015 where clubs started to change and realised that they need to open doors again. But there was a long period where you, you weren't really allowed to do anything around football clubs. So, but the B did, and they obviously had FA Cup rights. So you knew they had all these amazing behind the scenes stuff. A lot of it shot on film and even, even in the 90s, it shot on DigiBeta at the time, which can come up really nicely. So you were thinking, well, this is going to be rich. So it meant that almost the budget had to go on that and getting that restored and going to go and get rights to show some of the football. So, you know, you have to pay for every second of Premier League that's ever been played that you're showing your films. It's not just this last season, it's since 92. You've got to pay for all the UEFA stuff. And that's big. You know, the sports rights are huge, huge sums. So you have to push all your money into that, really. So it meant our shoots were kind of limited to what we would normally do. I'd normally like to go and find a location, make it look really cool, spend time with the DOP, sort of like thinking about how light falls on the face and all the rest of it. You kind of knew with football anyway that you're going to get people like tomorrow, not with that amount of time. So we we set a little style of just looking straight to camera. And basically what that meant was that you could basically, you know, have a similar type of shoot or shot for your interview. So it's sort of consistent, even though it's not as sort of amazing that you, you know, like most people would. And then the end that, and then that massively, it, it kind of meant that that kind of made the film a lot easier to produce during lockdown because obviously no one did anything for ages. And then when things started up again, eyes were on us. And I can't remember the other production at the B, but there wasn't much being shot, allowed to be shot by the B at all because of the risks. But the way we'd done it meant you could sit a cameraman, you know, the other side of the big room and on a long lens and you can keep your two metres and all the rest of it. And then we developed a little system where the camera out could go into become a zoom camera. The first thing that we did was Rafa Benitez and our exec actually went to go and do the interview for that because we just didn't want it to fail, but we need to test it and then it all worked from there. So we, you know, we're basically doing these interviews with these yeah, huge names in Liverpool and, and you don't need to send a cameraman or, or a cameraman and assistant as opposed to having, you know, sometimes when you do those big shoots, you, you can end up with 10, 15 people doing just for a single sit down because you need a, a spark, you need a, you know, your DOP, you need his assistant, you need a sound man, you need, you know, all these sort of things. So uh, it meant that it could be done. Obviously, we had to cut corners through it. I mean, there's certain football clubs weren't keen on having anyone external coming in, but, you know, to their credit, the likes of Leicester City shot an interview with Brendan Rodgers for us. You know, they did us a massive favour and, and people were really helping out. And it was really important for, for me to try and get it as good quality as possible because ultimately the film is, you know, covering, well, three decades at least, but really 
four decades once you, you're telling all the context to it and it's people's lives and it was probably the only opportunity you'd have to make something like that and you kind of knew that if you got it right for Liverpool fans it would stick in their hearts a bit but there's a lot of Liverpool fans up there so that leads to good TV ratings but then also as the feedback has kind of shown there's a lot of non-Liverpool fans that have come back and said they felt like it was a bit of emotional because it's again it's your life I mean like Liverpool was always been this big thing so if you're showing stuff like Spice Boys you know wearing cream suits and stuff like that you're always going to remember that you're always going to remember the chat behind all that so if you're sticking Zoom stuff in there I don't know if it kind of lessens it's down not anything wrong with Zoom it's just for something that when you've started to try and make something the best quality you can so we did it and I sat here researching and Dom was on the screen to the, my left here and so I was watching his output and he was on Zoom here and, and that's kind of how we made it and and then you know, I'd have to go off and do a Zoom interview with Benitez or something like that and, and you know, like that the same thing. So it was all a bit weird. I did him back in, that's the main thing about the whole thing because eight weeks sitting in this chair not really moving but yes it was a good thing to get get made and nice to get something out in lockdown and, and privileged to do so because obviously it's not been an easy time for a lot of people so to have something to do was great kudos to the whole team and 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 all, but all these things are only as good as the stories that you're telling you know there's a story there and yeah i'm glad they did win it because they deserved it and who doesn't like Klopp? i'm a big fan of Klopp as well he's a good yeah, he's yeah. clearly a very good dude as an actor, I'm often asked, oh, have you ever thought about being in EastEnders? As if me thinking about the show is enough to get me cast as a regular. What misconceptions, well-meaning or otherwise, do you often find when basically civilians talk to you about what it is that you do? Uh, funny enough, I had a call from, I think it was Radio Stoke the other day, about directing an EastEnders episode, but using plastic stand-ins for kissing scenes. And uh, I was like, I've never directed EastEnders. They were like, but it says here you're a TV director. I was like, I am, but I ain't directed EastEnders. So, you know, because I sort of mix between different things, I, I guess most people don't really know. I mean, one of the jobs I did during lockdown was editing work for MTV Cribs. Is that still going? Still going, man. But they did, the, they did a really good series with all these um, footballers' houses. But like, I'm sure that company only knows me as, a, as an editor and probably only hired me because I'm an editor that can speak Portuguese, right? So you get lots of misconceptions about what you do. My, my parents know what I do and my sister knows what it does, I think. But I'm pretty sure that like my auntie and uncle still sort of scratch their head. I mean, they did come and watch Kaiser at one of the special screenings that was on. And I think, I think they were like, what's going on there? <laughs> You're like, what do you actually do? So, I mean, the answer is, Damien, I don't really know what I do myself. And that's... Partly through just how life's panned out, really. I probably have marketed myself in a big way of like, I'm the man that does this. I mean, I was, you know, as I said earlier, with sort of developing out some dramas, like the guy who accepts Kaiser, he was a real big figure in UK film, around the Film Council, around United International Pictures. So we sort of developed stuff out with him. And like, I mean, I think it's probably good for everyone to know that not everything that he touches turns to gold either, right? I mean, it's kind of like, it's, you know, you have to have a, an array of stuff going and then one of them hits and then you still try and push all the other ones you know if i put my all into that and just said i only do drama now i could probably do it anyone could probably do it but you, you've got to spend the time and you've got to really aggressively go for it in a way that i probably can't take those risks now that i've got two kids and a mortgage but what the point is is i've never really pushed myself as any of those things i guess people would say oh you're the guy that tells feature-led sports stories which is probably pretty accurate at the moment and I really like it but then there's also a load of other work that I do that doesn't equate to that but yeah it, it must you must have done loads of these with, with people saying the same thing absolutely I think yes it's a common theme certainly for those who like you and me who do various different things is that you initially at least you have to be open-minded to doing lots of different things and picking up as many skills that you can then use and that are you know invariably then transferable it's just how you have to be because nothing's promised yeah. no nothing's promised and think and by the way like even if you've made it i mean i've seen enough things happen in media where someone's hot one minute and then drop the next right there's no safety in any of this but my dad was a bit of a polymath in that sense he was a steel fabricator then steel engineer ran his own business and then did art exhibitions started putting on sculpture exhibitions and then did a substance misuse masters and ended up on the board of aa and now he runs a bnb &B and does fishing stuff and so i've kind of been used to that anyway in terms of do what makes you happy and 
you know, just try and broaden your experience, I guess, really, because it is, I don't know, I find it a bit more interesting. I mean, having said that, I mean, there would have been nothing wrong with, say, working up your way through the BBC and becoming a, you know, senior manager there doing some interesting stuff. And then, you know, if you play it right, you, you can get to run the BBC or run a channel or something like that. And I don't think that was ever open to me, given my management still you know there's nothing obviously, obviously there's nothing wrong with doing one thing but but you'll be surprised i mean i've got friends who are like mds of companies who have taken this coronavirus break to actually reassess what they do they a lot of people want to change if they can you know i think the concept of one thing forever is probably gone to an extent but it's important to keep on doing stuff you know if you sit around doing nothing then you, you lose track a little bit Definitely. And I think it's always worth pushing yourself and trying something new because how would you ever know if that's not better than what you're already doing? Sure. And it's just about opportunities to do that, which is obviously in all of the various industries that we sort of cross between the both of us. I mean, that's it's obviously been a, the hot topic recently and it's quite hard to get those opportunities, you know, for everyone. And then, then when you get them, you've got to have the confidence to do it and all the rest of it. And so that's the, the tough thing, you know. But it, look, it, it, you've always just got to try and go for it. And then, and, and as always, I guess the cream rises to the top, doesn't it? So we're going to move on now to some questions from our listeners. So the first question is from Robert Knowles. And he asks, what sport have you found most challenging to work on and why? I would say the most challenging sport that I've worked on would be the Olympics. All the Olympic sports was lovely because generally they're people that are literally dedicated their entire life to get into the Olympics and there's no guarantee they will and when they get there that's their only chance you know obviously it's such a massive thing and then if they win it then their life changes and I always remember doing something with Helen Glover the rower before she became famous and she was literally a year into her own career and then a year afterwards she was the Olympic champion and it was amazing to see that go through actually golf and I've done a lot of golf and it's fine but I found it challenging because Whenever I did it for telly, I was back at the Beeb days and because I was a new guy in, I was the guy that always had to do first tee. And that means getting up at four o'clock in the morning to go and watch. And at that time in the morning when they tee off at like six, it's an average golfer usually hitting the ball into into the rough or even out of play. And yeah, they're very long days. And do you know what? Golf's one of those things that my dad taught me to hate. I don't know why. And then actually, obviously, when you see it on the course, it's like a very difficult game. And like if you're playing it, it would be a fantastic afternoon or day. But I'm hugely dyspraxic, so I don't even attempt it. I know I'll be terrible. And then so to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go and sit in a cold lorry by the side of uh, they're all like when they did the open, it's all like Lynx courses, isn't it? So it's all really windy and wet. So, yeah, that's the one I really, you know, that's the one I found difficult. But of course, I am open to telling amazing golf stories and, you know, making nice adverts for golf brands. That was back then. Right? It was just the opening tee. You don't have a problem with golf itself. It's just, no, that was just that was just a yeah, status thing. That was just being the. That was just being. And I wasn't that young then. But what twenty ten? What would I have been? Twenty seven. Yeah. So you know, wasn't a fan of that. But obviously, if I went back now, I'd you know, I would be uh, not on the four o'clock tour. Yeah, of course. Mm. And the next question is from Dan Chris, and he wants to know, how quick a turnaround do you have when it comes to making the highlights from a game? Depends what it is. Match of the day was actually, re like, once tape had gone out, you started it all as all on tape still, so you had, the match had to be recorded onto tape, and then you had to edit off the tape. Well, actually, it was in a halfway house, so some games, it would come into your edit suite, and you could stream it in, and you could make the highlights and then you still had to play out and take back in those days so it was still a bit of a process to get it out of the system and ready to play and so you know you'd obviously come in for 1 30 for a three o'clock match you have to be in your place by two because you've got to go through all the who's playing where and all the rest of it and edit all together now if you're doing it off tape then you've got to be really accurate with your decisions because it's not like I mean, I've actually got an edit program in front of me where you can pick stuff up and move it around and it'll be fine. It was all very much like, that has to go there and that goes there. And if you mess it all up, we have to start again, basically. So that would take a little while. But these days, obviously, everything is all server-based. So you can, depends on the game, right? <laughs> it really does depend on the game. You could get a three o'clock done, probably. I don't know, it's been years since I've done it, but maybe by, by seven o'clock, you know. I always remember the trickiest ones where where there was the, all the games were on a Wednesday. There's like a few match days. And 
generally the one that starts at eight o'clock or eight thirty or whatever is the one that wants to go first because it's got the biggest teams in it and so you'd have to basically take i think what they do now is they or what we did back then certainly was you'd have someone basically logging the entire game next to you you'd usually do it yourself not the editing but you'd usually log and tell what to do but then i think someone just logs it all next to you and then you work with the editor to get the half ready and then the other half has to come back on and the turnaround for that can be like half an hour after final whistle and that's for a long package right that's for like a eight nine minute uh, i mean it can be can be really quick i mean like when you're in a tv truck those montages at the end i mean they, they've got to go when they've got to go you know like there ain't, ain't no messing around the one thing i do miss about doing live sport which is i haven't i'm probably gonna do a little bit more soon but i haven't done it for a few years is the doing the the replays and especially on rugby because like, there's a lot going on on the rugby pitch like football's quite easy generally one main camera and then a few re- yeah and then all the other cameras as well were between eight and 15 but generally it's all happening where that ball is but obviously in rugby there's a lot going on and then you've got to basically got to try and find things in super quick time and get it played back to the director on air straight away so, so there's a breakdown of scrum what's happened where is it right which camera's got it you've got to go and find it and it's got to be ready in the next 10 20 seconds to go to the director I always found that a challenge and quite fun because it's all high pressure and there's a real adrenaline rush to that so they're, they're definitely the that's that's probably the highest pressure stuff that you get but um good fun who's making the decisions about what gets into the cut then so for say like a match day edit you, you if you were with an editor then you make the decisions and the show editor would not i mean unless there was something contentious so i always did the i remember doing the did i do it or did i did, do the montage after it i can't remember but i definitely worked on the show where louis suarez was racist to Evra, and that but i always remember like the, the story came out and twitter was going big then and you basically had to go frame by frame and work out what he said but generally for highlights packages you are trying like that's your job you're hired to make the right calls right so the editor's got to look at dealing with say gary and alan and ian whoever's on there and making sure all those things are right and there's a script to sort out and they've got to allocate all the time in terms of like a live production obviously the director's directing the match um but then there's often a replay director as well. I don't know what they're called these days. They weren't called replay directors when I did it. So that person would be across all the cameras. And so directors looking forward at the next thing, what's coming up and obviously direct calling the shots. And on something like rugby, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of cameras, especially for like a Six Nations match. And so they've got to be really, really on that. And if something's happened, they've got to go, they've basically got to trust the replay team to come up with the right sequence of events so you know i've done that job where you basically have and there's probably something that i think there's the bigger ones you'd probably have maybe six or or eight operators on the on the thing all of which have access to three or four cameras and so you've got to be across this big bank of screens they have to queue up the ones and you just have to tell them which order they're going so there's editorial all, all the way down basically and for something like rugby, there's just so much going on that you've got to get it right and have things ready. And you or you offer up, you just offer up all the time. Like, you know, it's ready to go now. You want this, you want to tackle it there on that channel, take it now. And then, they, then they'll say yes or no, and, and there you are. The next question is from Andy Nimmo. He says, when making shows like Liverpool 30 years on, and I guess to an extent, although I know you haven't necessarily worked on the All or Nothing series, how much of a say do clubs usually have in the final edit? And is it really as all access as they say it is? Liverpool, they had no say, but you don't want to mess that up. So it depends who you're making it for with and all the rest of it. So BBC, we're essentially making that film for, for their channels. There were things that could be put in the film that probably would have upset the club or maybe a, a former player or manager. But actually, in the end, you didn't, you didn't really need any of that stuff because the stories, it's more about that massive arc, that big narrative for me, that film. There will be, in something like All or Nothing, some say from the club, because it's ultimately is their IP. I mean, it's been fascinating, obviously fantastic for people like me who does a lot of this sort of stuff. All this clamour for sports stories is out there. It's something that we all of, I think a lot of us would desperately wanted to do, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, six years ago, and then all of a sudden it's now happening, and it's great to see. The clubs are too big now not to have agreements. And that is very much an access piece with the Spurs one where they, they have got into an agreement to shoot that with the club and Amazon and the production company. So how much? I don't know. Not privy to it. Um, I actually have been watching it. 
I actually got time to watch something moment and usually with these things I watch them about a year too late I watch some of them a year too late but this one I've actually watched quite recently and I like that for sure there's you can tell that there's everything's not there that's gone on because you know Josie Mourinho suddenly appears and are signing straight here and obviously what you want is the deal that happens prior to all that but there's commercial sensitivities all the way down the line and I know just from having conversations with other clubs and managers and occasionally chairmen that you know a lot of these people have been offered these sort of things for a long time and people have been very tempted but they generally turn them down for the reasons of could be bad for the brand could be brilliant depends what happens I'm, I'm not sure that comes I mean I've seen most of the Spurs one and I don't think Spurs come out badly as a brand I think Mourinho comes up quite well but obviously they're not going to show everything and so the answer is something like Spurs they will have some form of control yeah I've become obsessed with the all or nothing Tottenham Hotspurs I'm not a Spurs fan and I'm, I'm particularly not a fan of Mourinho I know he's entertaining but yeah pride that I wasn't a fan of his but I have to say I have warmed to him and obviously a large chunk of that is the edit when United beat Juve in Turin I was out there it was a nice little gig from BT. I'd just come off a film. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, can I have some work, please? I just needed something to fill my time up and all the rest of it. And so did some stuff. And they sent us away to cheer in for that game. And basically, you're there making sure that stuff happens. It's not anything, as I said, it's not like, you know, doing films or anything like that. It's not creative in any way, shape or form. But you're basically there to make sure that things get filmed, that interviews get done, that need to get done and get played down the line. You're like a location producer. And it's... um. We're in Chirin and Pogba turns up for his interview and he's he's under a load of fire anyway. I can't remember what for at the time. But actually he's quite disarming when when he did he was actually really smiley. He gave an interview, it wasn't anything, it was a pre-match interview the day before, I think. And then Mourinho came in with a face of thunder. We knew he wasn't gonna do an interview with us anyway for whatever reason. And I think they'd been watering the pitch or something. There was something going on with the pitch, Chirin. And he was out there looking at it for ages. And he was just like, the whole mood of the place was like, oh, well, this is really like, oh, hard. And then pre-match, same again. And it came across as an interview. I can't remember what, he must have been under some, some pressure at the time. And then they obviously go and win, have an amazing comeback. And in a flash, his interview was one of the best things I've seen. He was great. He was genuinely really happy. Pleased to see everyone, like shaking hands with, with everyone there and all the rest of it. Yeah, it was it was like he could just turn it on like that. It was amazing. I was like, wow, that's quite a powerful thing because I've done bits with Mourinho before and he's generally been quite present. But you could see how it was like, right, he's in a mood. That's going to really affect everyone else. And you, and you knew it. And I've got nothing to do with the club, right? And you knew that he could control that situation and control that mood. And, and that probably had a massive part of turning that game around in a way because I think Ronaldo had put you know, Juve one up and then who'd score for United? Matter, last minute winner, I think, something like that. But it was it was kind of amazing to see it at that close quarters, you know. I, I quite like All or Nothing and I like I really like the production company who make it. They've done some great stuff. They do all that Murdoch dynasty stuff. Yeah, I haven't watched that yet, but I know it's great. Brilliant, you should watch it. And they did the Syria doc on the House of Assad, which is fascinating. Oh yeah, that is a brilliant documentary, yeah. It is absolutely brilliant. It's a fantastic production company and like and they've put it together really, really well. I'd have loved to see more of the potch bit then Mourinho comes in but I have to say I like I mean I've seen a lot of criticism about it it's way better than the Man City one I thought the Man City one was pretty anodyne so it's, it's a bit more into it than that but I, but again that's a very hard line to take when you're dealing with these things and no doubt I'll, I'll have to go through it again at some point when you're doing something and the program makers know what they need it to be but obviously they can't and they're representing clubs and all the rest of it and the club like it's a big testing ground because how much do you show? How much of the tension do you show? Because if you show more, then more people watch it, but then people might think you're a basket case. And these clubs are now like they're just such big brands around the world now that they they probably can't afford for anything really terrible to go out on screen. So I get it. It's just that it's a very tough, very tough line to take. And then of course I'm pretty sure the players and the managers didn't want the cameras there either. You know, no. Um, so yeah, so I guess you've kind of covered the next question, which is from Mark Finnegan, which was how much when you're making these documentaries, how much do you look to shape the narrative to make it more appealing? Or do you usually find that the narrative kind of takes care of itself? In an ideal world. So I've just been pitching for work and you're shaping the narrative. You're giving you're giving commissioners. Right. You know, here's a deck. 
this current one's 20 pages. I think that's a teaser. We're probably going to have to make it 100 pages of like exactly what is going to happen in these films. But then sometimes you just go. So with Kaiser, we just went and made the film and it was like, right, let's just find out what this story is. And then without revealing what happened in the film, because it's such a big shift, but essentially once we had, once we knew what the shift was going to be, that we could build the narrative around that. As I kind of said with Liverpool, I didn't know what the narrative would be. I knew there would be one when we first started, but it was like, let's go, there will be one here. We just need to find out what it is. But then very quickly, especially after doing interviews with the likes of Roy Evans and Rick Parry, who's the CEO, and hearing about the actual sort of more behind the scenes stuff of what happened at the time, it became pretty clear that the Liverpool story was in three acts and it was basically Liverpool are, are a fantastic football team, the first dynasty of English football. They, they win everything, but their success is largely built upon just buying good players every year and shifting out old players. They don't really do any tactical work until Kenny comes in. So they literally are just doing fiber sites and sprints up until that point. And Kenny starts to change it a bit, starts to become a bit more modern. And then they have these two huge tragedies that happen in Heisel, but specifically Hillsborough, which devastates everything, especially Hillsborough. And then the club kind of has to become like a, a mother to its fans because it's obviously on their time that this horrible thing's happened. The eye goes off recruitment. They don't, they stop kind of buying because they're too busy trying to sort out this absolute horrible situation. And then when Kenny leaves, Kenny's kind of holding it all together because he's like, the biggest social worker going when he goes that really affects everything because we had a lot of people around at the time somebody didn't make the cut but like well that was the moment that really got to us it was obviously awful at the time but it was like another another thing because that was like he was a constant he was there he was leader he was going to all the stuff and then all of a sudden he's gone and everyone understood why he had to go and all the rest of it and then that's kind of like act one really all this stuff's happened but then at the same time the premier league starts and united run away with it on the field, but specifically off the field too, they realise that football is now a business. It's not just a community thing. It's a money-making business. You make good money out of this. They can dominate it, and United do. And Liverpool, they spend to compete because they've got so much money in for being who they are, but they don't have the foresight to, to keep on doing the business side. So they start falling behind then, and then they're always playing catch-ups, and then they kind of they kind of realise what they want there, and then they, they're doing, they're like, okay, we need to do that now. But then, of course... Whilst they've done that, everyone else has moved on a pace. Arsenal come in, they get a French person in, they get Wenger in, who changes the team. Then Liverpool like, oh, we're being overtaken by them now. We need to do what they do, so we'll get Julia in. What Liverpool always did was try to be a decent club and do the right things. And, you know, when they get someone like Julia in, they don't sack Roy Evans. They don't do the hard business decision. They don't, they treat it as, you've got to be nice to this person. And it stalls again because they have a joint manager situation. And this goes on for 20 years, really. And... It kind of happens with the sale as well of, to Hicks and Gillette. I mean, that's a distressed sale which didn't need to be made. It was sold because Chelsea had been taken over by a rich owner for spending all this money. I mean, unlimited amounts of wealth. And they just knew that they couldn't spend that kind of money. They were struggling to spend it anyway. They just knew they couldn't do it anymore. But they sold it to two cowboys who ruined the club and ultimately sold it. They could have just kept hold of it until they found the right buyer. And then and then that three years, the, the new owner's coming in. And it's still not right then, but the club starts to look outwardly. It's not looking at internal problems. It's not got joint managers to deal with or Steve and Gerard leaving or, you know, this huge worldwide public row between owners of clubs and board people and, and managers and stuff. So once we'd worked out that narrative, which I think it wasn't a particularly hard one to work out, but once you, you've set on like, okay, that's a really broad way of tying together these 30 years, because it's a tough story to tell. If you look at a lot of these docs, they're very like Asif uh, Capaldi, who's brilliant mates, Senna and Amy and Maradona. They're over very short periods of time, really, like four or five years. You know, Senna's not that long. Amy, I mean, she wasn't around for long anyway. And then Maradona is just a few short years in, in Naples. So this is a different beast. This has got to have, you know, you can't be as detailed as that. You can't look at like these things that are messing up individuals' lives. You have to look at the whole broad brush of it. But anyway, once you get that narrative, you've got to test it. And I did have a few conversations with the contributors and people, like former players and managers and people around the club and sort of said, look, this is where I think we're going with it. And they all pretty much agreed. They were like, yeah, now you say it, that's, that's kind of... That's the difference. That's the, the major the major thing. Film about coming to place in the world. So it's it's amazing how much you managed to get in. It's ninety minutes long, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. and this, you do manage to get so much in, like you said, 30 years worth of information in uh, 90 minutes. It's no mean feat, and to make it so emotionally engaging as well as factually engaging, I think it's one of the I, I was surprised by the emotion thing, because, I mean, that's largely all the feedback has always been the same. It's, like, it's a very emotional roller coaster of a film. It just seems to have got people, and, and I don't think... I don't think I was prepared for that because part of me sort of thinks, and this is selfish and arrogant, but, you know, it's a story that's out there that's been told. Why is us making that actually making people be so emotive? And I think I've done other films that are probably, for me, are way more emotionally. And like Kaiser, for me, is more of a thinking film and potentially more of an emotional film. But obviously I understand it hasn't got the reach of being on BBC Two and all the rest of it. But it has done that. And I think, I don't know, I think it's also, as I said earlier on, I think it's people's lives, people's entire lives in here. Probably in a time where people are in lockdown, everyone's doing the same, everyone's questioning, what am I here for? What are we doing? Is everything going to get better? I'm going to lose this, going to lose that. A lot of people losing their jobs. And then you're probably just showing this kind of like, this is your your main constant in your life. This is the 30-year history in in a way that made it sense. And it could only be made now. You can't make it next year. You can't make it when they win the second league. Do you know what I mean? You had to make it at this point. And I think it's just got a lot of people because it's it's their entire lifespans. And if you think about all the other things you like in life, like music, I, th- I don't really have a music choice anymore. I think it was a point where I was a UK garage boy like yourself, Damien. You know, like that changes and doesn't mean you're not attached to that stuff anymore and you don't have an emotive response to it. You know, the dramas come and go, don't they? You know, all the rest of this sort of stuff. But actually, you know, a football team, a sports team, but specifically a football team, given given it's this country, seems to just hold all those emotions all locked up and it is a constant that doesn't go. You know, there's not many people that fall out of love completely with the game. Only Is there any advice that you'd like to give to people looking to join the industry? Well, specifically in, well, I think all industries are the same, actually. I think anything creative, generally people do. I was always really scared when I was younger to reach out and contact people and felt like I was a bit out of place and all the rest of it. And actually, it was only when I started doing it that you realise that people tend to respond and people are willing to help out, I think. But do your research as well. I mean, it's one of those, I mean, you get get approached by a few people generally university students wanting to take you know like they're looking to do the career and these days they're studying for a career literally studying for this career and I'm like didn't exist when we were younger but it's do your research like if someone's made a film actually watch it you know have an opinion but also be willing to go in go in on an opportunity when you get it because it's nothing's too difficult in life I don't think if you put your mind to it and when you get those opportunities as I say putting you all into it but you know being a good good person when you're on set those things go a long way you know if you're easier to work with you're more likely to, to get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing this depends what people want to do i guess there's always opportunities as well i think that's the thing there's like there's not nothing's ever a closed shop things move on and you'd be surprised even in the world that seems saturated with all these things that there's still opportunity because people drop the ball and you know people get concentrated doing a you know so there's always stuff to be done and you've just got to picture it and go for it so yeah don't give up hope as i've got older the amount of people that i've done stuff with either through drama or being at the beeb or, or just doing sports stuff the amount of positions that they're now taking up as you get older changes so i did i was in the national student drama festival got called up to the actors ensemble and riz ahmed was in that and Khaled, and I can't remember his surname now. Funny enough, he goes around the corner. But they, they're in Hollywood films now, right? So they were doing that. The lady who was one of the assistant editors at Five Live now is second in command at Channel 4. Do you know what I mean? The guy that, when I really first started freelancing around, he was producing stuff with me. He's now a Bamiyang's agent. <laughs> like, like, as you get older, these things happen. Do you know what I mean? So it does, ch- you know, so you just got to keep going with it and take your opportunities because like, they, they've and they've all worked very hard to do all that and they're all very talented and worst of it but like it's at the time i'm pretty sure like that wasn't in anyone's heads you know probably not about name's agent because no one knew who he was you know 15 years ago but you know you get the point best football player to come out of gabon since cousins right i only i only know yeah. that because i grew up in gabon did you I lived in Gabon from when I was 18 months to five years old. So I, I remember seeing him in the African Cup of Nations, which would have been, I think he was playing at Rennes. 
at the time yeah. and they were hosting the Cup of Nations of Equatorial Guinea and they were down to penalties. Yeah. Cousin took the first one, Aubameyang took the fifth one, which he needed to score. He faffed about and obviously missed it and Gabon went out, I think, in like the quarters of the semis, which is like the best Gabon I've ever really done. Wow. I followed Aubameyang's career for a long time because I thought someone's actually yeah. going to really, really yeah. make it. Is there any way that we can keep up with what you're up to? Just look at my socials, Louis Miles. Yeah, I guess it'll be a reasonably quiet end of the year. It's a pretty hectic schedule for most of the summer. So there'll be stuff hitting in the new year. We've got a film, hopefully, that's just about to do a deal with Amazon, but we don't know. Brilliant. That's everything, Louis. Thank you so much for your time. I know you were a busy chat. It's appreciated. No, I really enjoyed catching up. Good to see you again, mate. Hey everyone, that's that. Thanks again to Louis Miles for taking the time aside to speak to me. I know that he was very busy and it was very kind of him to fit in our conversation. Thanks also to everyone, as always, who sent in their questions. We can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the social medias, at Real Cast and Crew. That's at Real Cast and Crew. Please make sure that you like, follow, whatever terminology that platform uses. Do it for podcast and crew. We really appreciate your support here. I can see that the family, as always, is growing. We've started getting listeners in Mexico and Portugal. Gracias and obrigado for your support. It's crazy to see that people all over the world are listening to how things are here in the UK in our entertainment industry. Also, don't forget to like, share, subscribe to the podcast. As Take That says, it only takes a minute, but it makes a real difference to getting the word out there about this podcast. I also see we've got more five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, which reminds me we are now on Apple Podcasts. You can find Podcast and Crew there. You can also find it on Google. Google Podcasts, Anchor, SoundCloud, all your favourite pod spots now have podcast and crew. So as I said, make sure you subscribe and give us a little rating. That would be great. Please also keep an eye out on the social media because I will be trailing who we're talking to next. One of my favourite parts about this show and something that a lot of the guests have said that they really liked are the questions from the listeners. So please keep an eye out and if something tickles your fancy, make sure you get those questions in. And one last time, thank you so much for listening and supporting the podcast. Thanks also, as always, to Oz Sounds for the beats. And in the meantime, keep well, stay safe, and see you soon. I'm a big fan of Klopp as well. I was just disappointed he was one of the ones we could do in person because it was just like things had lifted by that point. But, you know, in a normal world, you'd try and go for a hug, couldn't hug him. And he would happily, he would have said, yeah, absolutely, I loved, I'd have more than head. He definitely, yeah, of course he would. Of course he would, he wouldn't have mind. He probably would have stroked my hair. Oh, that's all we want, really. Anyone wants just a hair stroke by Jürgen. Yeah, yeah, it's just a positive grin, isn't it? <laughs>